Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. Come find yourself. Be true to you. You do you. Look deep within yourself. Live your truth. All those statements I just made are statements of pop culture. They are not biblical. But we use them to try to find our identity. We're big on self-discovery in our culture these days. A lot of money and resource being spent on trying to find our identity. But those are projections. I want to show you something this morning, an old school projection operator, operation machine. These are things that we try to do to project what we want other people to believe about ourselves and what we try to tell ourselves long enough that we start to believe them ourselves. You might project your identity by a worldview you hold. You might say, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm an atheist. I'm a feminist. I'm a vegan. I'm a Republican or a Democrat. You might project your identity by your occupation. I'm a musician or a pilot or a doctor or a farmer, a tradesman and so on. You might project your identity through social media saying, well, I'm pro this and I'm anti this, or I'm a fitness freak or a nutrition freak. I'm into this kind of fashion. I drive this kind of vehicle. I want everyone to see what a good person I am because I did my part. I'm going to project that to the world to see. But ironically, all of these projections of self-identity are actually not our identity at all. And in this lies one of humanity's great problems. People don't know who they really are, only what they do and what they attach themselves to, what they stand for or against. And so people try to carve out an identity for themselves by attaching to activism or activities, recreation and so on, or a community that supports your lifestyle or politics. And we call that our identity. But none of those can truly be identity because the definitions are always changing according to the social media mob uh, and the fury of the month, right? And there are also things that can be taken away from you. So they can't truly be your identity if they can be taken away from you. When you meet someone new, as, as I often do, one of the things that small talk usually brings you down to is what do you do for your job or your occupation? It's a pretty natural thing to do in conversation. We do it all the time. But have you ever introduced yourself to someone and then immediately gone into, so who are you really deep down? You met someone five seconds ago, like, let's get real. Let's get deep here. Kind of awkward, right? I would love to be in an environment where we could do that and go honest and go deep with each other immediately. But instead, what we do is we hide behind this projection of our identity, what we want other people to believe about us. It's actually a fear-based posture that we use to mask the longing for meaningful connection that we all have inside. A few weeks ago, Pastor Don had a sermon in our series talking about vulnerability being necessary for healthy relationships. Who are you really? Take away all that you do, all that you own, all of your abilities, all that you stand for, all of your accomplishments, your degrees, whatever they be, your favorite sports teams, your political opinions, what are you left with? 
when all that's stripped away. And so we project what we wish to be true about ourselves. It's a facade. And some people love to draw attention by posting online even ridiculous and negative things that happen to them, like posting their acne on Instagram because they want people to validate them. It's about identity. Well, Jesus knows human nature and the needs of human heart better than anyone. He is our creator, after all, and he has comprehensive knowledge of the human heart. And God made us for himself. He made us to know him and to be known, to love him and to be loved by God, to experience his love. And because of the fall of humanity, because of our sin, every one of us is actually estranged from God. We're detached from the divine life. And so we're always searching for selfhood, for significance, for security and identity without God. In our relationships, we seek to control other people. This is what happens when we live like Frank Sinatra, who took this famous song to the grave, I did it, what? My way. But the truth is, we will never find out what we're looking for apart from him, apart from Jesus. And the Bible says, there is a way that seems right to a person, but the end of it is the way of death. Still, we search and grope for meaning. We read self-help articles. We hire a life coach. We take an Enneagram test. We try to figure out who we are and what's important to us. But many people don't want God to be at the center of that self-discovery. In fact, most people resist God's truth if they suspect in any way that he is going to tell them something that contradicts the way they want to live. What happens is we end up being self-centered, searching for the next high, something to fill us, something to satisfy us, and then on to the next thing when the shine wears off of the last thing. I'm describing to you the futility of the human condition apart from Christ, which everyone in this room has in common with each other, myself included. We, sit, we spend so much time in our life asking, who am I, when we should be asking, who is I am? This new series that we're starting this week is called I Am. It's going to take us right through to Easter, and it will be an identity, but it won't be your identity or my identity that we're talking about. It's going to be the identity of the one who called himself the I am, who is Christ Jesus. The fact is, we'll never discover our true identity if we're only concerned with finding little I am. We need to find Jesus. You see, when I was a young man, I spent a lot of time thinking about lowercase I am. And I had to have a moment, what Pastor Mike called last week, an intersection. I spent so much time in morbid contemplation it actually led me to suicidal thoughts, and God met me at an intersection. He got a hold of my life, and his call to me was simple. Get your eyes off of yourself and get your eyes on Jesus. That's where we find our identity. When I humbled myself before the great I am and made him my pursuit, made him the center of my life, only then could I find out who God himself made me to be. And it's the same for every person in this room. It's only then that you're going to find your reason and the answers to all the great questions of life, the great existential questions like, where did I come from? What is the meaning of this life? Is there an absolute morality I must live my life under? What is my ultimate destiny? Those are the huge questions of human existence. And these questions can only rightly be answered in knowing Jesus, who is I am, the self-existent one. I want us to understand this from the very outset of this series that Jesus is the perfection of humanity. The Bible calls him the second Adam. 
because he succeeded in every way that the first Adam failed. And all of the first Adam's descendants, of course, are you and me. We also have failed. And Jesus comes along. He is called the second Adam. Jesus is the epitome of a fully functioning, fully thriving human. And by the way, Jesus was single. So don't ever think that you need a romantic partner in this life to be complete. Only by being reconciled to God, only by being filled with his own spirit, can you ever be complete. Jesus must become your all in all. Whether you're married, single, or divorced, Jesus must become your everything. And we see this every day. People hopping into bed with people they're not married to, or getting married to people who are totally bad for them, looking for completion. You'll hear phrases like, darling, you complete me. That's actually idolatry. Only God can complete you. And Jesus showed us the way that God intended us to live because Jesus was always secure in himself. Never once questioned his own identity. He spent zero days of his life navel-gazing. Never gave a moment's worry to what other people thought of him. In fact, he cared nothing for what anyone thought of him other than Father. And that alone is instructive for anyone in this room dealing with any form of insecurity or slavery to people-pleasing. If you care what other people think about you, whether in real life or online, you cannot truly be focused on the only one whose opinion of you truly matters. Only God's assessment of your life is fully accurate. The Bible tells you what God thinks of you. And that you are deeply loved with an everlasting love which can never be earned and therefore can never be taken away from us. Jesus' identity was not his upbringing. He was not defined by his education or his occupation. He purposely distanced himself from all of those traditional identity projection markers because he knew what his true identity was. He was perfectly secure in who he was, dearly loved by the Father. And Jesus' entire life, his entire identity was wrapped up in his relationship to the Father and in doing the Father's will, not seeking his own will. And so to be fully thriving human for us is exactly the same. It's got to be about his will over our will. When Jesus walked this earth, he made several I am statements. They are strategic and definitive statements of Christ's identity. They're not delusional or flailing attempts to project a favorable view of himself on others. They are the utter truth. There are 11 I am statements in the New Testament. And there are Jesus' claims from his own mouth about his own personhood and his mission. It's interesting to me that the Apostle John is the only biblical writer who picks up on these I am statements. We know from other places in the Gospels that John was an incredibly insecure young man when he met Jesus. He and his brother James were always trying to get into a place of privilege and power and position in Jesus' club. Because they thought that that was their identity. But by the time Jesus rose from the grave and the Holy Spirit got a hold of John's life, do you know how John identified himself from then on? The one who Jesus loved. That was all that mattered to John from that on. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. It wasn't that Jesus didn't love the other disciples, but for John it was personal. It was his new identity. He was one who was loved by Jesus. The entire focus of John's life was never again about himself. It was all about Jesus until the day he died. 
And John writes all of his books with a crystal clear purpose that we, his readers, will believe in Jesus and have life in his name. And by the way, that word believe occurs more than 80 times in the book of John. And that begs the question because it's such a mega theme. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Let's go to that slide. To believe or have faith in Jesus is to completely reorient your entire existence around the supremacy of Christ. And so this series for the next eight weeks is really going to be a study of the Gospel of John. And I want to encourage you, read the book of John during this series. Read the whole book. It doesn't take that long. But in that, you will discover eight specific statements of, of the I am, where Jesus stands up and says, I am this. Uh, there are three more I am statements in the book of Revelation, which John also wrote. But we're going to focus on the ones in John for this series. And in each I am statement, we're going to see the life of God emanating through Jesus. The I am statements are living analogies, and each of them are intended by God to point us to Jesus, who is God in the flesh, the giver of eternal life, to all who believe. There are three things that I am statements do for us. I want to point this out to us. There are three things that I am statements do. First of all, they reveal that Christ alone is the fulfillment, perfection, and completion of an Old Testament image or prophecy. We're going to see that in every I am statement. The second thing we're going to see is that it reveals that Christ alone can satisfy every longing of the human heart. The I am statements do that for us. And finally, they reveal Christ more fully that we might respond appropriately through deeper worship. These statements of Jesus are truths that we can build our life upon. In fact, to worship him correctly, we must reorient our lives around I am. Have you been trying to figure out your life? Have you been trying to figure out who you are? I tell you, it's a dead end. And at that dead end, there's Jesus standing there. He's the great I am. His desire is for you to know him and come to trust him with every detail of your life, including your final breath. That's who we're talking about this morning. That's why Jesus is the center of it all. Now, the I am statement that we're going to focus on today is, I am the bread of life. It's the first one we come to in the book of John. So if you have your Bibles, let's go to John chapter 6, and I'm going to invite Peyton to come and read for us this passage. It's a fairly lengthy passage, but it's all the words of Jesus. And so as he comes, I want to invite you guys to stand, please, if you would. These are the words of Jesus, John chapter 6. And as Peyton reads them, I, I just want to ask you, if you want to close your eyes and just hold out your hands in a receiving posture, because this is the very words of Jesus to wash over us today, to fill us with his truth and with his spirit. Let's do that together. John six twenty six through 58 says this. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. They replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses did not give bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me, even though you've seen me. However, those the Father who has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? But Jesus replied, Stop complaining about what I say, for no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. At the, and at the last day I will raise them up. As it is written in the scriptures, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Not that anyone who has ever... Not that anyone has ever seen the Father. Only I, who was sent from God, have seen him. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in him has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread which I offer so the world may live is my flesh. Then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats the flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person up at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me, in the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. You can be seated. These are the very words of God to us today. And I want us to see the association between bread and life. Specifically, eternal life. You see, bread is often used in the Bible as a symbol for food in general. So if you're gluten intolerant here this morning, don't be so concerned about all this talk of bread. Bread simply represents life-sustaining food, okay? Because apparently, we can't live without food. What is true in the natural is true in the supernatural. We cannot spiritually live without Christ. That's the simple gospel. You without Jesus equals eternal death. I want to highlight for us a few important examples of bread in the Old Testament. Because in ancient times, uh, for example, bread was given as a gift very often, a very practical gift. You have a birthday and you want to get an Amazon gift card? No, no, no. How about a nice warm loaf of bread? Great gift. In all the I am statements, we're going to, see, uh, we're going to need some Old Testament background to help us fully understand the richness of these metaphors. And so I've given some four examples of, of those in the Old Testament. Let me start with the Jewish Passover. There was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted for seven days. This was the grandest of the Jewish celebrations, and it culminated with, with Passover. And so the festival specifically called for bread made without yeast. Now, in the Bible, usually yeast is a metaphor for sin. And so in this case, 
the bread was made without sin. And the bread points to Jesus, who is the bread of life, and he was sinless. So that metaphor is already there. It's, it was already established in the Old Testament narrative as a foreshadowing of Jesus to come. Also in Jewish worship, there were bread and grain offerings for worship. So in the temple, in the tabernacle, uh, when G Jewish people would take in a harvest of grain in the fall, they would bring some of that offering to the temple, and the priests would help them offer it before God. And what they would often do is take a loaf of bread or a sheaf of wheat or whatever, and they would hold it up to the sky. They would wave it before the Lord. It was called a wave offering. And what it did is it symbolically was giving thanks to God, acknowledging God as the one who helped them bring in the harvest and provided the rain and provided the sunshine. They were acknowledging him in their worship. Another example of bread in the Old Testament were um, the permanent display that was made in the temple. There was a table in the temple um, called the table of showbread, and it contained 12 loaves of bread, one for each tribe of Israel, and it stood as a permanent memorial. They would replace it every seven days, but it was a permanent memorial to God's presence and his provision for his people. It was very central to their worship. Another significant Old Testament image of bread is the manna, and I've highlighted that one because I want to spend a little bit more time on that. Uh, in the passage that Peyton just read, Jesus is showing that he is far greater than even the supernatural manna that came down from heaven. In fact, the manna is a foreshadowing of Jesus. It points to Jesus. I'm going to show you how that is. First of all, manna was not produced by hard work, like planting and harvesting grain or grinding flour or making bread. And just like that, our salvation is not us working to get to God. Relationship with Jesus and salvation in him is God's gracious gift to us. It comes down from God. We cannot work to earn salvation, which, by the way, is the core fallacy of every false church and every false religion, that we somehow have worked to God and get to God by the things we do, and somehow he'll, he'll be pleased and he'll receive us. That is the core fallacy at the center of every false religion. And the manna shows us, no, no, it's a gift from God. They did nothing to earn it. And salvation is just like that for us. You see, every part of the manna illustrates something about Christ. Another thing we need to know about the manna is that it was all they needed to survive. It was supernaturally nutritious and like lucky charms, magically delicious. And it sustained them. They would have died without it. It kept them in perfect health as their primary food source for 40 years. Well, that's how it is with Jesus. He alone is sufficient. And we will perish without him. Another thing about manna is that it had to be gathered every day, except for the Sabbath. They were allowed to gather two days' worth before the Sabbath. But otherwise, if they cheated and took too much, it would rot in their tents. And it's just like that for us. We need fresh bread from Jesus every day. You don't just get a little bit of Jesus and hope that it's going to get you through your week and to get you through your month. You need him every day. You need to take in his word just as you do food. Taking his word just as you do food. My daughter works at Subway right now, and once in a while she'll bring home some bread that is unfit for Subway consumption. I don't know. There's nothing wrong with it usually. Uh, either it's too dark or it's the wrong shape, and she'll bring it home. Uh, one thing I've learned about Subway bread is out of the oven fresh, pretty good stuff. Not too bad. If it's sat around for a couple of days, it's awful. It's terrible. It's, yeah, anyway. We need fresh bread. That's where the money is. Fresh bread, not stale bread. One other thing about manna is that manna was sweet to the taste, except to the ungrateful, rebellious complainers. Well, just like that, Jesus is the sweetest and most beautiful name to those of us who welcome his message and welcome his presence. 
Those who love God want more of Jesus, as we often sing about in worship. But Jesus and his message is offensive to the prideful heart. It's offensive to those who hate God's commands. And that's why Jesus said in this passage, you must ingest my flesh and my blood to have eternal life. Because it's all or nothing with Jesus. Either you embrace him and you come to him on God's terms, or you reject him. There is no middle ground. And so all of these Old Testament images point to the necessity of bread for life. Bread is a symbol of God's faithfulness to provide for his people. And that's the key to understanding Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life. When Jesus claims to be the bread of life, he's claiming to be God's provision for humanity. It's a ground-shaking and exclusive claim, as all the I am statements are. We will eternally perish without Jesus. God's favorable and gracious provision to us comes down from heaven, and it's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. His cross demonstrated his love for us, and his word of truth is the solution to every broken relationship, every marriage problem, every societal, every political problem we will ever face down here on this broken world. Jesus is the answer. He is God's provision for us, and he is the bread of life. If that's what the blessing of having bread means, then the lack of bread in the Old Testament should obviously be understood as a form of divine punishment. When Israel was disobedient, the lack of bread was a symbolic way of warning the people that God's presence and his favor and his blessing were also gone because of their perpetual sin. Let me show you this verse from Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord... The Lord of heaven's armies will take away from Jerusalem and Judah everything they depend on, every bit of bread and every drop of water. Why did this happen? Because Israel was being punished for generation after generation of unrepentant idol worship, child sacrifice, and sexual sin. But it also gets worse than this. Because the prophet Amos comes along, and in verse 8, 11, he says this. This is what the Lord told him to say. The time is surely coming, says the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread or water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. That's even worse. What, what he's saying here is, you'll be left on your own to fend for yourself. And you will build a society without God and without his word at the center. And it will become living hell on earth. Surely, you can see the connection between what Amos was saying here and what Isaiah said and the year 2023, the dumpster fire that we are living in right now in this world. The irony of living in arguably the most blessed and prosperous and possibly overweight, overfed nations on planet Earth. And yet there is a scarcity of Jesus. There's a scarcity of his bread of life. There's a famine of Jesus in our culture and in in our politics. And so bread as a... Bible image is vitally important for us to understand God's provision of Christ for our eternal lives. And in Christianity, we have the sacrament, one of only two sacraments that are given to all of Christianity, the, the table of the Lord, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. Those are the only two that are given to the entire church to have for all time. And it illustrates so beautifully and profoundly our dependence on Jesus alone as our sustenance. And as we partake of him, we remember that this bread of life that he offers us is the only source of eternal life. I hope you're beginning to grasp what Jesus means when he makes this claim, I am 
the bread of life. Bread is a symbol for his physical body, sacrificed for us on a cross. It's God's provision for the payment of our sins, you see. Now understand, in the passage that Peyton read for us, how the Jewish people would have been appalled by the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, because Jesus says, you must eat my flesh. Well, that's cannibalism. You must drink my blood. Both of those things absolutely forbidden for the Jewish people. From the very earliest days that they were founded as a nation, God made very clear, you're never to do either one of those things. But Jesus is wording all of this in a way that forces a decision of allegiance. Because he brings us into an entirely new way of relating to God. Jesus is shaking the ground with his words here. And we know that Jesus had to die in a physical body to pay the physical penalty for our sins. Let me read for you Romans 8.3. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And so in addition to bread being a symbol for provision of our body, Uh, It is also a symbol of friendship or reconciliation. Here's how it works. You don't sit down at a table and enjoy a nice meal with someone who's your enemy. But if you're reconciled to a person, eating together is a natural thing to do, right? And Christ's body is both the means of our reconciliation to God and the meal that demonstrates the reconciliation. And so the question for us today, who is Jesus the bread of life to you today. Have you received him? Do you thank God for the provision of your body's physical needs every time you sit down for a meal? Is it your daily pattern to pause before a meal and give thanks to God for the food you enjoy? That's entry level, right? But more than that, do you thank God every day for the provision of his dear son whose body was broken on the cross for your sins? If you're a follower of Christ here today, do you understand that if you neglect personal daily Bible reading, you will become spiritually famished and weak? Bread satisfies hunger, but you've got to eat more than once a week to be sustained. What is true in the natural is true in the supernatural. We need to feed on Jesus and his word daily. Here at MVF, we call that our up relationship. You've heard this before, yes? Our up relationship daily with Jesus through his word And he feeds us. Let me ask you this. Does Jesus satisfy you? Is he enough for you? It's not a one-time satisfaction. We turn to Jesus again and again to meet the needs of our heart. When Jesus said in this passage, you'll never hunger again, it means we're not going to need to turn to anything or anyone else to satisfy us other than him. He's the source. And so our regular ongoing need for food should remind us that we need Jesus as well. He's the bread of life. The bread is both the person of Christ and the word of God, which is also called the bread of God, which feeds us. So I want to recap a little bit this morning. I want to see if I accomplish what I set out to do in the beginning. Every I am statement, including the one we're talking about today, the bread of life, does three things for us. Let's see if we covered these bases. Number one, it reveals that Christ alone is the fulfillment, perfection, and completion of an Old Testament image or prophecy. I, I hope I showed that to you. 
through the Passover bread, through the temple worship, through the offerings and so on, through the table of showbread, and through the manna, that Jesus is the perfection, the completion of that image. It all pointed to him. Secondly, I, I was hoping to show that the I am statement reveals that Christ alone can satisfy every longing of the human heart. I hope you're sensing a hunger in your own heart right now that Jesus alone can satisfy. You're not going to find it out there in the world. The world has nothing to offer you to meet the deepest needs of the human heart. Only Jesus does. And he provides reconciliation for broken relationships. And he alone provides us with identity that is true and lasting because it's founded on God himself. And the third thing I was hoping to accomplish is that the I am statements reveal Christ more fully so that we might respond appropriately in deeper worship. I get to speak a little bit about this as your worship pastor right now. I've just sensed a bit of lethargy in our worship in the last little bit. Just a sense that it's not connecting with our hearts, that we're not bringing our praise to God. If we understand these I am statements correctly, it's going to lead us into deeper worship, more reverential worship. We'll be happy to come and raise our voices and raise our hands to him because he's our everything. We long for him. And in worship, one of the ways we worship is by reorienting our lives around his supremacy. The truth of Jesus is something we can build our life upon. These I am statements are things that we can build our life upon. He is the bread of life. I want to show you one last little tidbit here as I close up. We can go to the next slide. This word, Bet Lechem in Hebrew. Little quiz. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem, which means house of bread. Beth, house. Lechem, bread. House of bread. That's what Bethlehem is. Did you know that it was prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came to this earth that he would be born in the town of Bethlehem, the house of bread? And today he stands before us and says, I am the bread of life. Is that not awesome? Three of you think it's awesome. Yes, it's amazing. You see, the Bible is a complete unity. It's one story. The Old Testament always points to Jesus. Every aspect, every page of the Bible in the Old Testament points to fulfillment in Jesus. And Jesus is the one who says, I am the bread of life. I think that's so cool. I'm going to ask the band to come back right now. We're going to spend some time in worship this morning, even before we come and partake of the Lord's Supper. I hope you can see why this is like a hand-in-glove fit, right? We're going to be celebrating the bread and the blood of Christ this morning through worship. But I want to have a word with you this morning. Maybe you came into this place today, and some of this language that I've been sharing with you is, is foreign to you, and yet something is stirring in your heart. You're like, I, I recognize that Jesus is something that I need. I recognize that there's a longing in my heart. There's an emptiness there. There's a hunger and Jesus can fill that. Maybe you recognize today that you need Jesus in your life. You need him to come in and completely take over. Not, not just a little bit, but to completely take over your life. And here's how that works. The Bible says that we are all sinners. We're all separated from God. In fact, it goes even farther than that to say that naturally, by default, every person in this room is an enemy of God. We've become that way because of our sin. And when Jesus went to the cross, he was paying the penalty for our rebellion, you see. 
And God punished him on that cross instead of punishing you and me, which is what we deserve for our sins. And Jesus' body was broken for us. And so today, do you recognize your need for a Savior? You call on his name. Here's how it goes. God, I know I'm a sinner. I've broken your commands. I stand rightfully judged for what I've done. I deserve eternal punishment for what I've done. But I'm thankful that you stepped in and took my place. You paid in your own body the penalty that I deserve. And I believe that, and I receive that to myself. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be born again. We're on the right path here. It gets even better than that. Jesus was in the grave for three days. And on Sunday morning, he rose, and he lives forevermore in a real physical body. And his promise is that if you believe that and you put your hope and put everything you have into that truth, that one day you too will rise from the grave. There's a little tidbit in this passage that Peyton read for us. Four times it says, Jesus says, I will raise them up at the last day. What is he talking about? He's talking about the end of time. And the whole Bible is a a chronology from beginning to end. And we are working toward the end of history right now where this present earth will be destroyed. That shouldn't be a surprise to you if you look at the way the world is going with the pollution, with the wars, with the hatred that is in our world. Things are winding down. That's what the Bible has long prophesied. And Jesus says, at the last day, I will raise them up. Those who believe in me are going to rise to experience eternal life. The question is, do you want that today? Are you open to that? Do you desire that? Are you hungry for what only Jesus can provide for you? Would you bow your heads with me right now? I know there are several people in this room who need to respond to Jesus today. Maybe you've been feeling kind of a tug in your heart today. You know that God is speaking to you. You know that he is moving in your heart right now, and it's time to respond. The way you do that is by saying, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Just go ahead and pray that prayer right now. If you believe that, God, I'm a sinner. I recognize that apart from you, I would be eternally doomed for my sin. But I thank you that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sin. And I believe that and I receive him into my life right now. And Jesus, I believe that you didn't stay in that grave, but on the third day you rose again. And I believe you literally physically rose from that grave. And I'm putting my trust in you because you promised that if I believe that, then one day I will too. And I want that resurrection. I want that eternal life that you promised. And I receive it and I believe it. And I'm taking hold of it right now. If you believe those things, the Bible says you've become born again. Your, your eyes have been opened. You're seeing things the way God sees them. And it all centers around Jesus, who is the bread of life. If you've prayed that prayer this morning, would you just raise your hand where you are? Everybody's head still bowed. Just, if you'd raise your hand if you prayed that prayer for the first time today, you're receiving Christ, the bread of life. Praise the Lord. If that's you, I hope you'll come and talk to me afterwards or come talk to a pastor. We need to to talk about this and help you on the next step of your journey with Jesus. But I rejoice with you, all those of you who raised your hands. That is so awesome that you've responded to Christ this morning. His invitation is is open to you today. We're going to continue in a time of worship right now, church. I want to invite you to stand to your feet. Let's exalt the Lord our God. Let's worship. Let's respond to him. Let's raise our hands and our voices. He's Jesus, Messiah. Amen. Amen.